Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Most of the nation understands that our history is bad in some level. There's a few people who are in complete space of denial that won't acknowledge anything, but most people have some general sense that part of our nation's history is bad or negative. And so when they get confronted by it, they immediately want to want to address it, change it, repent of it, and move on. And that's before they even understand the depth of the problem. And so what I'm trying to tell people is, no, when you hear this history, when you understand what's been broken, oftentimes you're only hearing the tip of the iceberg. You're only hearing a few of the things that have gone wrong. And you don't yet understand the depth of the problem to be able to fix it. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Before we jump in to what I'm sure you noticed were some changes to the Pantsuit Politics intro, we've got a couple interviews we want to share really quickly. 
We spoke to Carol at Speaking Your Brand podcast about having grace-filled conversations at public speaking events and how that changes the type of events we do. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to the speaking events in a minute, actually. But check out our interview with Carol. We'll be sharing the link in the show notes. And we also talked with Marilyn at United and Together about our book, about speaking across the aisle, about working together. So check out that podcast as well. Sarah said to put a pin into speaking events. Here we are. Our 2019 calendar is full. Thank you to everyone who's reached out about bringing Pantsy Politics to you this year. We absolutely love spending time with people in person. It's something we're going to be doing a lot more of in 2020. We have already booked quite a few events in 2020, and our calendar for 2020 is filling up, believe it or not. We have space for about 15 more events. So if you would like to bring us to you next year for a live podcast or a workshop about good communication or a keynote, please email Elise as soon as you can. We do not want to miss you. We really love spending time all over the country. So get on it, Elise at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. And we are excited to just plan ahead for the next year. It's going to be amazing. That's what we did this weekend in Nashville. We all came together, Beth, me, Elise, and spent two days at a strategy retreat for Pantsuit Politics. And we started out with sort of a big picture, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this work? What is the work that we're doing? And one of the biggest things we talked about at the start of the retreat is that we feel like Pantsuit Politics has really changed since the beginning. We sure hope it's changed. We've been at it for three years. And we've really evolved from what originally started as a an idea about bipartisan conversation, about talking across the aisle, and has shifted and changed and evolved over time to become something much more, to become something that's about hard conversation, that's about giving grace, receiving grace, learning about yourself, using those conversations to really assess what is real, what is true, what's important to me. What do I need to learn more about? What don't I know? And pushing people into those spaces or inviting them along with us into those spaces is probably a better description. And as we had that conversation, we realized that the tagline for Pantsuit Politics and the way we introduce ourselves, first of all, has been something we've been struggling with for a long time and just it doesn't fit anymore. And Beth in particular had a very emotional moment as we decided to shift away from Beth from the right, Sarah from the left. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Tell the people, Beth. Tell the people. Well, I struggle with carrying that label because I so often disappoint people's expectations of what from the right means. It is emotionally exhausting for me as a two on the Enneagram and lots of other attributes of my personality to be told that I am constantly disappointing people. Hmm. I don't think that... My views align well with either party in 2019, and they probably won't for the foreseeable future. This doesn't mean that you aren't going to hear Sarah and I disagree sometimes. It doesn't mean that anything about my perspective on what government is and should do is different. It does mean that I just want to let that go. And honestly, as we've spent a lot of time talking about our book, and this is sort of hard to say, but we have all these conversations about civility and bipartisanship, and that is not what we mean. 
And mm-hmm. Sarah and I are, I think, always trying to find new ways of saying, like, that's not what we mean. We do mean something bigger than that and something that is more tied to values and that is more tied to who we are as whole people than just if we could be nice across the aisle, our problems will be solved. Because we don't think that that's true. I think we need to be nice across the aisle and work together more. But that's like the tip of the iceberg of what we're trying to accomplish here. It was just a huge relief for me to know that we're not going to set that expectation anymore. We're not going to welcome people into this space with, hey, you're going to get kind of equal left and right here. Because I just don't think that that's what America needs in 2019. And so I personally feel a weight is lifted and I feel just much more honest about what we're trying to do. And I'm so glad that those of you who've been with us from the beginning, especially, have helped us understand better what we are doing and what we're good at doing and what value we bring into your lives. And so thank you for being on this journey with us and thank you for understanding when we need to evolve. I don't think anybody who's been with us from the beginning is going to find this change the least bit surprising. And I hope those of you who are new in this house feel that this is more reflective of what we're trying to do here. What she left out of that is that she cried when we made this decision and she was the first person to cry at the retreat, which I feel like is a big deal since I am usually the crier. Well, let's let's tell the whole story here because Tara looks at me like I have three heads and she goes, don't do that. That makes me uncomfortable. And I was like, pardon me? I've spent three years listening to you cry every time we talk. There can be a little room for my tears here, too. And that's it was weird. That was my immediate reaction, because usually, especially in the beginning of the podcast, like it was like a goal. I wanted you to cry on the podcast. I had such a I had such. But now I guess I just realized it, it doesn't make me uncomfortable. It just makes me feel like. I don't know, maybe uncomfortable as a word, because I know what a big deal that is for you. And I don't ever want you to be in distress, I think, is what it's about. I have been in distress. I mean, that's the truth. That's the truth of it. Every time I get introduced that way, every time I see it somewhere, it has been a stressor for me. And so I appreciate everybody as I lift that stressor and move forward. So we also took a lot of time to, like we said, plan our calendar. That's why we're putting out a call for speaking gigs in 2020 because we looked at our calendar and we're like, row, row, it's getting very full. Because of the election, our fall is very full. We have speaking gigs and we have the tour, which we are currently trying to name. So if you have a good name idea for the Pantsuit Politics Tour, let us know. And just looking at the all the locations we're going to, we're so excited. We can't really wait to share all of that With you guys over the coming weeks, we talked a lot about the future of the podcast and the future of The Nuanced Life, and we'll be sharing all that through the coming weeks as well. It was a really, really, really great retreat, and I think the intro changing is just sort of the manifestation of big decisions and big new directions for the podcast. Introductions are Always important. And I think this is a really good spot to transition to today's conversation with independent presidential candidate Mark Charles because he believes strongly in the importance of introductions. And so we're going to let him introduce himself. Mark Charles, Yanisha. Sin Bake Dinah, Nishla, the Tohiglini Bashachin. Sin Bake Dinah, Dasache, the Tohichini Dasanella. Hello, my name is Mark Charles. In the Navajo culture, when you introduce yourself, you always give your four clans. We're a matrilineal people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. Now, my mother's mother happens to be American of Dutch heritage, and so in my introduction, I say, Sin translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. 
My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohuglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbukedina. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And we are just delighted that you're here, Mark. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to uh, be invited onto your show. I've listened to several of your episodes, and I like the way you try to frame the dialogue in a very respectful way. So I'm looking forward to a fun conversation with you. So when we start off our show, we try to just do a little catch up. We only record twice a week. And as you're probably familiar, the news is not trying to wait for our twice a week podcast. Okay, so there is lots and lots of news over the weekend. One of the biggest stories that we would love to hear your thoughts on were the protest in the streets of Hong Kong. Over two million people turned out to protest the law that the Hong Kong government was thinking about passing, allowing for the extradition of people to China. And I thought the relationship between Hong Kong and China is something you probably have a lot of thoughts on. Yes, I do. I mean, you have several layers there, and there's so many layers. You know, when you have most of the of the non-Western world having been colonized by Western nations, such as Britain, France, Germany, and the United States, as well as the Netherlands and other nations, you end up getting these very complex relationships like you have between Hong Kong and China, or you have with indigenous peoples or indigenous nations that are inhabiting are living inside other nations, or you have a lot of what's going on in Africa, which most of Africa was colonized by Europe. And so that perspective is what actually the kind of lens that I view what's going on this past weekend in uh, Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And what I find most interesting is most of our media, as well as many of our citizens, kind of look on what Hong Kong is doing and what China is doing, the passing of this bill and possibly extraditing people to China where they would not have near as many rights. And we look on that with some sort of moral superiority. Oh, that's unthinkable. How could they do that? We know what China does and all these other things. But the challenge is most people don't know what our nation was founded on. And they don't know that this is exactly what goes on within our nation. You know, in in my campaign, one of the things that I'm working very hard to do is to redirect our dialogue from so many things that we end up screaming at each other politically about to really focus on what is the root, what is the cause of the problems. And most often the cause is what's embedded into our foundations. So when we have a declaration of independence that refers to native peoples as savages, when we have a constitution that excludes women, excludes natives, and counts Africans as three-fifths of a person, when we've never abolished slavery, and when we set up the judicial system as the gatekeeper for civil rights, we have this nation that's founded on the exact same things that we pretend to be appalled about going on in other nations. Mm. And so one of the big turning points in my life was probably happened about seven or eight years ago when I was I was studying about the doctrine of discovery. I was studying our foundations of our, of our nation. And I just came to realize, I, I accepted the fact that the Constitution as a Navajo man was not written to protect me. That's not why we have a Constitution. The Constitution is written to protect the white landowning male And that's there for the purpose of the Constitution and the courts and the judicial system and the law enforcement and all these other things going on. 
And because we've never addressed that, we've never we've never talked about that, we've never made a national decision to change that, that's still embedded in our systems today. And so what most of the people, most majority culture, white Americans are appalled at is for happening in Hong Kong and in China today, many people of color throughout the United States are saying, well, that's our experience here. You know, that, that, that's the life in the United States, living as a person of color, or living as a woman, or living as, you know, some other um, uh, disenfranchised or, or marginalized person on our foundations. And so it's when I, when I see kind of the, the moral indignation of our country aghast at what other nations are doing, but we don't understand how our own systems are rooted in and many times operate out of the same belief systems today. And so we act like, well, we're better than that, when actually we're in pretty much the same boat and maybe even many places taking the leadership in those types of things. And so that's, as I've been watching what's been unfolding in, in, in Hong Kong and with the massive protests that are going on, that's what's been in the back of my mind. Your opening campaign announcement video talks about this and about how our constitution is is built on a faulty set of premises. And as I've been thinking about Hong Kong and your message, I wonder, there's a, there's a part of me that freaks out for Hong Kong, that its arrangement with China, the, the documents that govern that area of the world right now is going to expire, and no one knows what happens next. I also wonder if there is some opportunity in that. What would it be like if we had some kind of structure in our country where we said, every 50 years, we're going to look at this thing with fresh eyes? I think that sort of idea is what's very, very necessary, you know, and on one hand, you, you can argue that China has a very legitimate complaint, which is <laughs> part of their country was colonized by, by Great Britain, and they would like some of their land back. On the other hand, there are certain freedoms that the citizens of Hong Kong enjoy that are not enjoyed in mainland China, and they would like to maintain their freedoms. And I think we cannot address the current relationship between Hong Kong and China without addressing the historical relationship between Great Britain and Hong Kong. And, and that, unfortunately, is the issue that most Western nations don't want to deal with. They would rather forget that almost anything happened before 1940, 1930, and say, let's just move forward from here, where most of the problems our, our globe is facing is because of what came out of Western Europe in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And there's never been a proper accounting, reckoning, healing, addressing of those issues that cause so much of the dysfunction that, we're, that we're, we're, visit, we're seeing today all around the globe. And, you know, that's actually at the heart of what I'm calling for here in the United States, where when I've looked at our history and I've looked at what has been embedded into our foundations and what our nation has done to African-Americans and to Native Americans and to women and to other marginalized peoples, I concluded the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. A conversation I would put on par with the truth and reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. I would call ours truth and conciliation because 
Reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony, which is just not accurate. And conciliation is merely the mediation of a dispute. So it acknowledges the past for its brokenness, but saying we can still move forward. And I really think we need one sooner rather than later. And why, that's why it's such a center point of my entire campaign. So as we're also looking around the globe, we need see another spot of tension and escalation, and that is particularly with Iran, which we stepped out of the nuclear deal, as everybody knows, then we expected Iran to keep up its part of the nuclear deal. And there's been continued escalation. If we took a hard line with them, they would keep up their part and maybe come to the negotiating table again. That's looking less and less likely. And they now have stated that they will start stockpiling weapons-grade uranium in violation of the nuclear deal. As you look at these spots of escalation, what is a process for, like you said, maybe not reconciliation? I don't know. Maybe that is conflict resolution. What would that look like with a Mark Charles presidency? Well, again, this this is the challenge where we have one administration that went through great lengths to negotiate a treaty, a nuclear deal with Iran. And then the, the next administration pulls out of it and then expects that things are still going to move forward in a good way. You know, and this, unfortunately, is how the experience most native nations here in the United States have with the U.S. government, where treaties were written and then they're not followed through because there's other administrations come in, our, our alliances change, our other things happen. And so we have all these treaties. You know, when you read in our Constitution that treaties are the supreme law of the land, and yet the nation does not do a good job of keeping its own treaties, of keeping its own word. We are so invested in short-term economic gain, are responding to immediate threats that we, we do not think in the big picture. We do not think long-term. And so as President Trump came into office and really tried to wipe out the memory that was, there ever was a black man sitting in the Oval Office where he now sits, you know, and he tried to erase and, and deconstruct everything that President Obama had done. Yeah, there's going to have a, there's going to be a lot of consequences to that. And that's going to make our nation and the globe less safe. As you think about our nation from this critical lens. What would be the guiding light in your foreign policy? How would you think of America as it relates to the rest of the world? if you were directing our military policy and, and our national security efforts? I would say, you know, that there's so much emphasis on America needs to be the moral and military leader in the globe. And I don't see any justifiable reason why that needs to be the case. The United States of America has never demonstrated moral leadership in the global community. We haven't. You know, when, when I go back and I look at the, at the history of California, and in 1851, they went straight to statehood without becoming a territory. And their first governor, Peter Burnett, in his first State of the State address, this is what he said, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or wisdom of man to avert. Now, he's not saying there's a famine that's happening, it's not raining, and people are going to die because we can't feed them. 
He's not saying disease has broken out and it's a shame, but we don't have the, the technology or the medicine to, to stop the spread of this disease. He's saying as a nation, we can't stop killing these people. Think about that. The first governor of California openly admitted they were fighting a war of extermination against an entire race. And then if you look at the policies of what many would note as our greatest president, who was Abraham Lincoln, in 1862, he signs the Pacific Railway Act, which allocates land and resources to complete the Transcontinental Railway. And with two and a half to three years of signing that bill, he and his policies have literally ethnically cleansed the Dakota and the Winnebago from Minnesota, the Cheyenne and the Arapaho from Wyoming and Colorado, and the, the Navajo and the Mescalero Apache from the territory of New Mexico. And these were three of the primary routes where they were thinking of sending the Transcontinental Railway through. The man our nation terms as one of its greatest presidents was actually one of our most genocidal and ethnically cleansing presidents. And we don't ever talk about that. And so when people say the U.S. has this moral leadership, you know, and we point to World War II, we dropped two nuclear bombs in World War II. We killed hundreds of thousands of Japanese civilians in World War II. That's not moral leadership. That's doing whatever is necessary to win a war. You know, when people talk about, well, back in the 40s and 50s, we had moral leadership. We had a strong moral value in the United States. In the 40s and 50s, when we were lynching black people, when we were putting Native students, taking them out of their homes and putting them in boarding schools, that's not moral leadership. Now, white people were generally more safe in the 40s and 50s. White people were generally prospering and growing in the 18th and 19th centuries. But people of color, women, African-Americans, Native Americans, no, we were literally enduring genocide during these years. And our nation doesn't know how to talk about that. We don't know what to do with that history. And so to, to say we have to reclaim our moral leadership that's like asking, when did we have this? When was this moral leadership evident? You know, in his final State of the Union, President Obama, he was talking about the need for a new politics in the United States. And he said, we the people, our constitution begins with these three simple words. Words we've come to recognize mean all the people. Now that sounds beautiful. And he got a lot of applause for that line. But I heard him say that, and I was like, when? When did we decide this? We've never decided as a nation that we wanted we the people to mean all the people. The founding fathers didn't mean it. Abraham Lincoln didn't believe it. As good as the civil rights movement was, it didn't get us there. President Trump absolutely does not believe it. This is the challenge. We, we, we can't just assume when we the people has historically not meant all the people, we can't just say, well, we're in a new era and now it's going to mean all the people. No, we have to make a decision. We have to decide as a nation, is this what we want? And that's really what my campaign is about. I, am, I want over the next 18 months, I frame my campaign as an 18-month dialogue an 18-month conversation of teaching American history, 
trying to get down and, and look at the root of our nation's problems and then asking our nation, do we want to fix these things? Because if we do, we have some hard work ahead of us. Are there any spots where you see encouraging work do, being done around this where groups or organizations or, oh, God, wouldn't it be awesome if you could actually list a politician or a, or a state or local government where you see real encouraging work on these issues? I will acknowledge. And, and again, this is a two-edged sword. So in my campaign announcement video, I, I highlighted that we have 51 gender-specific male pronouns in our Constitution and not a single female pronoun. And I acknowledge that due to the hard work and tireless efforts of people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has set out to change a lot of the sexist laws in our nation and, and, and really bring that dialogue to the forefront, I love the, the way the Democratic Party has much been much more intentional to center the leadership and the and the, the role of women in political government, whether it's through the Speaker of the House or whether it's through electing not only women to Congress, but even Native women and African-American women. I like the progress that the Democratic Party is making to center women more fully in the national dialogue. I, I affirm that. I think that's absolutely necessary, and it's a very good thing to do. Now, I say that's a two-edged sword because it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg who last referenced the doctrine of discovery in a Supreme Court case in 2005. I was so shocked to see that. Stating that natives cannot have sovereignty, cannot reclaim sovereignty over their traditional lands, and essentially making the same argument that John Marshall made back in 1823, which is because we're savages and we have to, we've civilized their wilderness into our cities. And so, and, and so this is, this is the, the challenge of that two-edged sword is because we've so often dealt with our nation's problems in silos, you know, where I, I affirm, I, I, I'm grateful for the, the incredible work Ruth Bader Ginsburg has done to help bring an equal footing or a more equal footing for women in our nation is absolutely necessary. But she has actually helped prop up the institutions that literally dehumanize Native peoples. That's something we have to talk about. And, and this is where I point out in my TED talk, the TEDx talk that I gave titled We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History, that the challenge is, and this is why I'm phrasing the question of do we want to be a nation where we the people means all the people? Because today, as recently as 2005, the United States Supreme Court references the doctrine of discovery, a dehumanizing set of church doctrines from the 1400s as part of the legal precedent for land titles. If we are ever going to be a nation where we the people means all the people, we have to address land titles. We have to address that. And that's a can of worms that Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't want to open up. Pope Francis didn't want to open that up. President Obama wasn't willing to go there. But this is what we have to talk about. If we the people is ever going to mean all the people, 
we have to actually discuss the fact that our land titles are based on the dehumanization of Native peoples. I love the conversation that's going around in many circles politically about the need for reparations for former African slaves. That is absolutely necessary. That is absolutely the right thing to do. But on top of that, what I'm telling people is not only do we have to pay reparations, we have to abolish slavery. The 13th Amendment reads, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereas the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. We've never abolished slavery. It's completely legal within our criminal justice system. And we incarcerate our people of color at an astronomical rate over our white people. And our nation incarcerates its citizens at a higher rate than almost three to five times higher than almost every other country in the world. So, yes, let's talk about reparations, but let's also talk about the fact that we've never abolished slavery. And I think that's a pretty important thing to do. So these are where I'm trying to refocus our conversations and get away from this notion, this incessant need of our nation to be exceptional. And, you know, I, I post, there was an article about, about my campaign the other day, and one of the quotes they used is that I said, we don't need Republicans to simply be better Republicans or Democrats to be better Democrats. We need Americans, all Americans, to be better humans which means we have to address the systemic white supremacy, racism, and sexism that's embedded in our foundations. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. As I was reading some of your writing and listening to previous talks that you've given, the word lament kept coming up. Yes. And I was thinking about how my brain chases verbs. Okay. So as I'm listening to you, I think, great, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And lament is something that I'm trying to learn as an adult. How, how do we do lament? How do we just kind of stare this in the face and accept it and sit with it for a while instead of chasing what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I would love to hear how you teach people. I've heard you talk about how, you know, white Americans live under the trauma of this system as well. And we all need to do this lament work. So can you talk a little bit about what that means? So I'm, I'm writing a book and my co-author's name is Sing Chan Ra. He's a a theological professor, theologian from North Park Seminary in Chicago. And uh, we're writing a book on the doctrine of discovery titled Unsettling Truths, the Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. It's due out November 5th of 2019. And one of his previous books was titled A Prophetic Lament. And Sing Chan and I actually became friends because we were both out speaking largely within Christian circles. And he was talking about his book, Prophetic Lament, and he's done a lot of work around our nation's history with slavery and kind of the, the theological justifications the church has done for slavery. And I was doing a lot of talking and lecturing on the doctrine of discovery, but we both were, were ending on this theme of lament. And lament, in it, it, it's used frequently within the, the, the Bible, and it is a sitting in the brokenness Lament is not repentance. Lament is not change. Lament is not even action. Lament is sitting there and acknowledging the fact that you're in a broken situation. Oftentimes people in lament, they will weep or they will cry, they will, they will mourn. But for me, lament is just allowing myself to sit in the situation and to control my need to immediately change it. And I call our nation into this place of lament because most of the nation understands that our history is bad in some level. There's a few people who are in complete space of denial that won't acknowledge anything, but most people have some general sense that part of our nation's history is bad or negative. 
And so when they get confronted by it, they immediately want to want to address it, change it, repent of it, and move on. And that's before they even understand the depth of the problem. And so what I'm trying to tell people is, no, when you hear this history, when you understand what's been broken, oftentimes you're only hearing the tip of the iceberg. You're only hearing a few of the things that have gone wrong. And you don't yet understand the depth of the problem to be able to fix it. So, for example, if you, if you live in a house that has a bad foundation and your walls begin to crack and you, your plaster starts coming off and, you know, you see a crack in the wall, you may fix the, you may, you know, get some, some putty and fix the, the crack. You may try to repaint the wall. Maybe your floor starts slanting down. So you might try to, you know, bring in some new carpet and fix some of the floor. But as this keeps happening over and over and over again, eventually you have to recognize, okay, the problem isn't that the wall's cracking. The problem is the foundation's broken and the house is not settling properly. And, you know, there's a, there's a massive problem. And it's one thing to fix a wall or to change your carpet. It's an entire another thing to go down into the basement and investigate and look at what happened and figure out what you need to do to make it better. And so lament, I would argue, is the tool that will give us the courage to go into the basement. It's so much easier just to, to focus on the cracks in the wall and the slanting of the floor. It's terrifying to go into the basement and see the damage that's happened to the foundations that's expensive, that's going to require massive change, it's going to, you know, it may even require moving out of the house for a while. I mean, there's a lot of things go into fixing your foundations. And th those are the problems that most people don't want to deal with. And so I use this call for lament as a way to say, we have to prepare ourselves to go down and honestly look at what our problems are. As you keep talking about these foundational issues, uh, process of reconciliation like they went through in South Africa. I keep thinking back to an interview I heard with Kenneth Feinberg on the podcast Without Fail. It was called The Tragedy Expert. So I don't know if you're familiar with Kenneth Feinberg, but he has sort of built this expertise in handing out compensation funds. So he was in charge of the September 11th compensation fund. He was in charge with many of the school shooting compensation funds. He helped with the case with Vietnam veterans and Agent Orange. And he, after talking about really what you just described, that so many people need you to just sit with them in their brokenness and witness their lament, he had this really interesting moment where the interviewer asked him, so when we're dealing with these big injuries or these big, and I think that this is totally applicable to what you're talking about with foundational problems in America. How do we, how do we heal that hurt? Is there a way to do a program that wouldn't involve money? Not in America. Now in South Africa, you'll recall, post-apartheid, they um, enacted legislation creating a Truth and Reconciliation Committee program uh -huh. where everybody, victim and perpetrator alike, was permitted to come and testify in open court about the horrors of apartheid, knowing that if they did so, they would be immunized from liability. 
I don't think a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the United States would work. The United Why? States, because the United States has always, from its inception, viewed the courtroom and money as the great leveler, as the way that you have the victim be compensated for her or his loss, paid for by the perpetrator. And I keep thinking about his thoughts on that as you talk about how, because this is something we talk about on Pansy Politics all the time. How do we go back? How do we deal with these these original sins, if you will, of the United States? And I wonder what your perspective is. When you talk about sitting with the lament and dealing with the foundational problems, does that always involve some sort of economic component? Do you think that's the only way to move forward? Or is there another process available to us? I would argue the economic component absolutely has to be there. You know, that's one of the challenges South Africa is finding today, where it's now been 25 years since their TRC. They wrote a whole new constitution, and yet many people are asking, well, not much has changed. Why is that? Well, because they, they didn't actually address and fix the underlying economic, you know, foundations. They didn't change. You know, they, there wasn't a, a drastic shift in in land ownership and and in who who owns the businesses. And so this absolutely has to be a component. And this is where I, I fear that just by it's it's not I don't think it's enough just to put a price tag on it. A friend of mine uses this example all the time. He says, if you have if you have five people and they're playing Monopoly and they prevent you from playing and they play for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. And finally, after three hours, they say, okay, you can play now. Well, now all the properties bought, all the hotels are out, all the houses are out. You may be able to play and go around the board a few times and collect your $200 every now and then, but you're going to lose. You will go bankrupt very, very, very quickly because they may have let you play, but they didn't they didn't change. <laughs> they, they've already been playing for so long that all the resources are distributed. Right. And there's a very slim chance you're ever going to be able to, to get up even onto equal footing with them. And so this is where I'm I'm advocating, along with the conversation about reparations. We have to talk about the foundational economic disparities that we have. It's not just enough to pay a fine. And I love the fact that, you know, when, when the U.S. wanted to pay for the Black Hills, <laughs> the tribe said, no, you can't pay us for that. Like <laughs> We don't have an economic value on that. This is something, you know, this is not something, this is not a fine you can just pay and dismiss and move on. And you probably have heard about this apology that happened back in, in 2009, when now Governor Brownback, back then Senator Brownback, was in the U.S. Senate, and he wanted to give an apology to Native peoples. And he worked with some people to write what I understand was a fairly meaty apology, but he could never even get it out of committee. And so he watered it down, watered it down was reminded that the way they would pass Indian treaties is they would put them in appropriations bills so they would be more palatable to people. And so he finally stuck it in House Resolution 3326, which was the 2010 Department of Defense Appropriations Bill, 67-page bill, tucked into subsection 8113 on page 45, was Apology to Native Peoples of the United States. 
It contained a seven-bullet-point apology, mentioned no specific tribe, no specific treaty, no specific injustice. Basically said you had some nice land. Our citizens didn't take it very politely. Let's now just call it all of our land and steward this land together. And then end with a disclaimer, basically saying nothing in here is legally binding. And that apology was never announced, read, or publicized by the White House or by Congress. I found out about that apology by accident two years to the day later on December 19, 2011, and hosted a public reading of that apology in front of the Capitol building on December 19, 2012, the third anniversary of the signing of that bill. We had the apology translated into the language of Ojibwe and Navajo. We read some of the appropriations leading up to the apology. We had the, the apology read in both in the native languages as well as in English, because if you're going to apologize, you should apologize in the way that is most easily communicated to the people you're apologizing to. We gave the people in attendance a chance to respond and to, to give their thoughts on this apology. And when I learned about this apology, I was convinced that it just didn't get publicized, and so therefore it didn't go anywhere. And so I took the entire year, 2011 to 2012, to publicize this apology. I wrote about it. I traveled. I spoke about it. I invited anyone who would listen to come to the Capitol on December 19, 2012. I sent a letter to the Obama White House. I spoke personally with Governor Brownback. I sent letters to many senators and Congress members. I sent letters to Christian leaders and business leaders and educational leaders. And by and large, the primary group of people who showed up the morning of the reading was people from the grassroots. And no one who had any real foot in this game came to own this apology. And so after we read it and after people had a chance to respond, I took this, the mic and I I had waited for President Obama or Governor Brownback or anyone to come and take ownership of this apology, and nobody showed up. And so I said to the people in attendance, I said, and to my Native peoples, I said, I don't think we should accept this apology, not out of anger or bitterness, but out of respect. We deserve better, and our nation can do better. And that was one of the, the major learning points in my in my life of understanding our nation just doesn't know what to do with this history. Now, had Governor Brownback come to me, not that he would, but had he come to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this apology, I would have advised him against it. I actually was trying very hard about the same time to raise this issue of the Doctrine of Discovery up and realizing that our nation didn't know how to talk about it. I was living, we, my family and I moved from Denver, Colorado, back to the Navajo Reservation. For three years, we lived in a very remote camp, sheep camp on our reservation. We lived with a family that wove rugs and herded sheep for a living. We had, our community was six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. We had no running water, no electricity. And we were living there for three years. And then three years later, we moved into another part of our reservation and a, a little less off the grid, um, but still in a, in a remote part. And when we moved there, my family and I prepared to live off the grid. We prepared to haul water. We prepared to cook over a camp stove or over a fire. We prepared to live by candlelight. What we were unprepared for 
was the intense marginalization that our Native communities feel. We quickly learned that, by and large, the two groups of people who come to reservations who are not Native are those who come to take your picture or those who come to give you charity. Almost nobody comes for the sake of building relationships. And so during this time, I'm feeling this intense marginalization. I'm feeling like we've kind of dropped off to the face of the earth. I'm looking more accurately at the historical actions of our nation. And I'm becoming angrier and angrier and angrier. And I'm trying to talk to my friends, my non-Native friends, over the phone again because they're not coming to the reservation, to describe how I'm feeling. And every conversation I have, I, I, I get more and more angry till eventually I have to hang up the phone so I don't start yelling. So I eventually begin to kind of disconnect emotionally and talk about this environment like I would talk about something I read in the newspaper, which let me be in the conversation longer. But then the defenses of my friends would rise up and soon they would hang up the phone because, they, well, this wasn't my family who did that to you. It wasn't my fault that that happened. And they would get so defensive, they would hang up the phone. And so I was looking for a way to engage the dialogue and and have the conversation about this history and about the current environment in a way that actually brought people into it. And I was writing a letter to some of my friends, and I said to them in this letter, it feels like our Native communities are this old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture. They're eating our food. They're having a party in our house. Now, they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later. We're tired, we're old, we're weak, and we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most and causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand, and simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. Now, most people would say that's way too simplistic. Just a thank you? Well, it may be simplistic, but I can guarantee you it's not just a thank you. To be able to say thank you requires you to embrace and accept a different paradigm. Right now, we have a nation that views itself as a nation of immigrants, which is not accurate because we have Native citizens and we have African-American citizens. Native people did not immigrate to join this country, and African-Americans were brought here as slaves. So we are not an entire nation of immigrants. So saying that devalues or even marginalizes, dehumanizes two of the, of the groups that were dehumanized at the foundations of this country. And the challenge we have is we have 300 plus million majority culture people who think they discovered Turtle Island and act like they own the place. And we have 6 million indigenous peoples, or even more, being treated like unwanted guests in someone else's house. Saying thank you requires a shift in that paradigm. It requires an acknowledgement that you didn't discover this land because you can't discover lands that are already inhabited. Saying thank you requires an acknowledgement that this actually isn't your house. 
saying thank you requires conducting yourself not as the host, but as the guest. Saying thank you begins to shift this paradigm. And I would say this paradigm is one of the massive challenges we face as a nation. And that is at the root of much of our problems. So I want to wrap up with one of our listener questions, because I think it follows nicely on the idea that this paradigm shift is what we need. For listeners who don't have experience with Native cultures, who don't live near Native communities, but are really inspired by the paradigm shift you're talking about, what resources would you recommend to them? Where would you direct them to learn more, to become involved with with your campaign or with another organization? Yes. So there are many good resources out there. First of all, I would encourage them to go online and just research the history of their lands, where they live, Mm. find out what, what native nations were living there before white settlement moved in. And where did those people get moved to? There's a great website out there called native-land.ca. And it's not the all in all encompassing authority, but it's a, it's a place where you can literally enter in your, your city or your zip code or your town, your address, and it will give you some direction to understanding who was living there prior to white settlement moving in. And there's a lot of good resources out there. There's a really good book called Pagans in the Promised Land written by Stephen Newcomb. It's one of the forefront books right now on the doctrine of discovery. And it really gives a, a, a good analysis of what this doctrine is and the way it's impacted and affected both legally as well as kind of socially our nation. I have a book coming out in November 5, which is On Selling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. And that will be available online. You can actually find it right now on our publisher's website, who is InterVarsity Press, as well as on Amazon.com. You can find it under that title. On my, I have a personal blog. I've been blogging for probably 15 years. I started blogging when we were living in the Hogan out on the reservation, and I've been blogging ever since. And so you can, as you go back and read my blog, you can see kind of my progression as I go through wrestling through some of these issues. My website, my personal website is wirelesshogan.com. And then that's W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N.com. And then my campaign website which is markcharles2020.com. And on my campaign website, we have a nine-minute announcement video. And I went against the advice of a lot of people to release a nine-minute announcement video. And it starts, the whole first minute of the announcement video is me introducing myself traditionally in my language. And then I, I take eight minutes to introduce some of this history help people understand some of the challenges we face and lay out my, my hope, my vision for our nation and this truth and conciliation commission and this dialogue I'm hoping to frame over the next 18, I am going to frame over the next 18 months. And I, I want the nation to see that video, not because everyone's going to agree with me, not because everyone's going to vote for me, but I want the nation to see that video and to know that, they are invited into a dialogue that has the potential to begin healing our past and has the potential. There's a great quote by George Erasmus. His name, he's a, he's a Diné leader from Canada. He was actually quoting someone else, but in, in some of his writings, he used the quote and he said, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. 
if you want to build community, he says, you have to start by creating a common memory. I think this quote gets to the heart of our nation's problem with race, gender, and class, which is we don't have a common memory. We have a white majority that remembers this mythological history of discovery, expansion, opportunity, and exceptionalism. And we have marginalized peoples, people of color, women, who have the lived experience of stolen lands, broken treaties, slavery, Jim Crow laws, boarding schools, internment camps, Indian massacres, wage disparity, families separated at our borders, segregation. And we don't have a common memory. And I think everyone can agree right now that on a national level, community is almost non-existent. And so my hope in announcing my campaign, my hope over the next 18 months is to begin to frame this dialogue, to teach this common memory, to invite people into this conversation so that beginning in 2020, we can begin moving forward to actually taking steps to create a better community and to begin healing some of these deep seated broken wounds that our people, all people in the U.S. experience. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your work. Thank you for sharing this message. Thank you for all of the education that you're providing. Anyone who runs for president is doing something very hard. Someone running on a message of lament is doing something much, much harder. <laughs> and so uh, we're, we're just really grateful. I'm grateful that you spent time with us today. Well, thank you. It's been great to be on your show with you. And again, you can visit my website, markcharles2020.com. There are many ways people can get involved whether through donations or signing up to, to volunteer or helping collect signatures because I'm running as an independent. And so we need to get on the ballot in all 50 states. And I am inviting anyone and everyone to join this conversation. So thank you for sharing your, your platform with me today. So we want to do a little debrief on our conversation with Mark Charles before we tell you what's on our minds outside of politics. Sarah, I was really excited for this conversation. I've read a lot of Mark's blogging that he referenced in the discussion. I've listened to several interviews. I think he has some beautiful and very profound ways of, of expressing this central theme that America needs to have a conversation that it's unwilling to have. I found myself struggling in the conversation because I had like a hundred policy questions that I wanted to ask as well. Yeah, and I think what we learned from the conversation, and look, this is this is not a necessarily a critique. It's just a description. I think some people run for president to be president. And I think some people run for president to start a conversation. What became more and more clear is that that's the second is what he's really trying to do. I don't think that he is thinking through a bunch of policy issues. I think he has one conversation that he thinks is vital. And look, I agree with him. I think it is vital. I think that the way he speaks about the doctrine of discovery and the way he speaks about our Constitution and this paradigm shift that we need to have through conversation, through reconciliation, through perhaps reparations is really, really valuable. And I hope that that through his candidacy, that conversation can become a wider one. But I was also hoping to hear more of his perspective on a wider range of topics. But I just don't I don't think that that's what he's here to do. And again, I think that's fine. I think there's lots of candidates right now that are out there, sort of that single issue, want to bring 
attention and focus to something. And so they're using a run for presidency to do that. And it felt important to me to honor what he wanted to do with this conversation and to just be a good Mm -hmm. listener in it instead of pushing to have a conversation that isn't the one he's trying to advocate for. I mean, I think a lot of the work that I have to do on myself as a person who's trying to be really open to learning a different version of our country's history is just listen. I saw Caitlin Curtis, who I just I really love her work on indigenous people and spirituality and how the Christian church specifically needs to reckon with that history. She posted, I think sometime last week on Twitter, something like, hey, you've learned that everything you thought you knew about native people in America was wrong. What are you going to do next? And my reaction was, well, if I've learned that everything I thought I knew about Native history is wrong, then I'm then I've got to learn my history differently. Right. Because we don't compartmentalize things. If I got something wrong about any piece of the world, then that alters all of it. And so I I think he is right that this is a really big, really difficult discussion. And listen, I love people who take the forum of the presidency seriously in sparking those conversations. It's why I feel myself drawn to Marianne Williamson's work, too, because I think that what the Trump presidency has created in America is very much kind of a set of psychological issues that we need to discuss. I mean, when I think about what does Donald Trump, like, how does he really affect the country every single day? It's a long list. But a good percentage of that list is he affects our feelings. And Mm -hmm. so somebody who can teach us to have a healthier emotional state as a country, I think that's, I think that's really valuable and important. What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? I am full in summer reading season. I saw Laura Tremaine post this on her Instagram, and I think she's right. It's just a really good year. Like, there's, like, a lot of fantastic fiction that it seems like everybody's reading. And I realized I'm I'm, I'm getting better at distinguishing what I really like to read. And the truth is I just like to read the It novels. The ones that everybody's talking about right now, those are those are my favorite things to read, especially literary fiction. So I read Daisy Jones and the Six. Have you heard about this book? No. It's so good. It's like a transcription of a documentary about a 70s rock band, except it's all made up. It's so good. I know it sounds wacky. It's like almost famous, but a novel. And Almost Famous is one of my favorite books. So I loved that. And then there's The River by Peter Heller that everybody's talking about. And I loved that. And now I just finished Mary Beth Keene's Ask Again Yes, which is this, my favorite, favorite type of fiction, which is like a f- sort of family saga playing out over a couple generations. Loved it. Read it in two days. Thought it was really beautiful because I think it's the most real life novel that I've read in a long time in that. Big things happen, but she doesn't seem to need them to or make them sort of death or to to try to dial up the drama. She just tells these people stories like they feel so real to me. I loved it. And then I already have on hold Elizabeth Gilbert's City of Girls and the editor, which is like a fictionalized account of Jacqueline Kennedy being this guy's editor, which 
Oh, my God, I'm so here for it. It just feels like all the books ever, and especially, this isn't fiction, but I've also got Lori Gottlieb's Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Have you heard about this book about therapy the therapist wrote? I have heard about this book. Everyone's talking about it. I'm just, I'm all in on these books. I love Summer. I love that we're all seemingly all reading these books together. I'm just loving it. I'm loving it so much. I've like just totally abandoned trying to watch TV because I'm like, I don't even care. I've got too many books to get through and I'm loving them all so much. Summer is just made for fiction. I feel that so strongly. I just listened to Elizabeth Gilbert's conversation with Oprah about writing this book. Mm. Have you listened to that yet? I have not. I'm endlessly fascinated by Elizabeth Gilbert. I do too. I love her. I love her so much. I just am so interested in someone who is like, listen, my life's going to change over time and you guys are going to roll with me and I don't really owe you anything, Mm -hmm. but I love you. Word. And me living my way is good enough. And it's and it is this incredible gift to have this person living in an incredibly public and vulnerable and just sometimes dramatic way. I don't know. I just want to listen to every interview Elizabeth Gilbert gives because I think she is a fascinating person. And Oprah said to her, hey, anybody who knows what's been going on in your life did not expect you to come out with like this super fun fiction novel at this moment in time. And she was like, yeah, I know. Right. It's cool, isn't it? (laughs) I I really like that about her. Yeah, she's I feel like she's always like that. I mean, she just. I think being forged through the fire of the eat, pray, love phenomenon just gave her such permission. I think she was a pre- I mean, listen, think about the journey of eat, pray, love. Clearly, she's comfortable giving herself permission to do things other people might not think are acceptable. Right. Mm-hmm. But she, she's also just a brilliant writer. One of the most interesting things I've ever heard. I think about it all the time. I don't know why it, it stuck with me, but I saw in live in Nashville a conversation between Elizabeth Gilbert and Ann Patchett. First of all, I would like to be on that text exchange with those two women. I know they have one and I would like an invitation. Um, it was a great conversation. And Ann Patchett basically said that the signature of all things, which was Elizabeth Gilbert's novel before City of Girls, so good about this woman. I mean, just the breadth of what she's covering in these novels. This woman in like the 1800s, I think, and she's like into moss. I know it sounds crazy, but it's so good. And Ann Patchett was like, yeah, I talked to everybody who basically said you would have gotten the Pulitzer if it weren't for you being the eat, pray, love lady. And I was like, that's outrageous. I about came out of my seat. I'm like, no, that novel is good enough to get the Pulitzer. It's good enough to get the Pulitzer. Like she doesn't she doesn't deserve to be, you know, subtracted points because she wrote this massively successful. But she just she was like, yeah, I get it. Like She just, just let it go. Like, I don't know. She is so zen. What are you thinking about outside politics? We are recording on my daughter Ellen's fourth birthday. Happy birthday, Ellen. I love a four-year-old. Hallelujah. You do? I think four yeah. is a terrible time. No. It's, Not terrible. It's better it's than wonderful. three. And then it's awful. In my house, four has been worse than three. In oh, my house. no. What happened? Why? Four has been like, when Jane turned four, I thought, why did everybody lie about how bad two and three are? It's four. It's where she has all this language. To express her big feelings with, she's super smart and kind of crafty. And so Mm. four is where you can tell that she's starting to make a decision to be angry and she's just going with it. She's like, let's see Mm -hmm. what I can disrupt for you. But it is like high highs and low lows when she is on. She's just an absolute delight. She says the most funny and insightful things. I can't even believe what comes out of her mouth sometimes. We played the animal guessing game in the car yesterday. Do y'all do that where it's like somebody's thinking of an animal and everybody asks yes or no questions to get to what the animal is? Oh, yeah. 
And man, her her development with those kinds of activities is just phenomenal. And then she gets really, really angry sometimes and she convinces babysitters to let her do things that she could never do if we were here. And so it's it's a roller coaster with Ellen right now. But I I know now from Jane that this is just four. And when she turns five, it'll all really settle and be fun and great. It's fun now. It's just it's four-year-old fun, which is a whole different thing for us. But Ellen is my accountability child because I feel like she reminds me that the way I interact with her teaches her so much less about herself and so much more about how I think of myself, which in turn she's going to replicate. Mm. So it's not like in any individual instance of her having a fit She's thinking, oh, mom loves me more or less based on how she reacts. She's she's watching like, do I take responsibility for it or not? So I just remind myself when Ellen's melting down by not trying to fix that for her, I'm teaching her not to be a fixer. I'm not going to teach her anything about her fit, Mm. but I can teach her not to be a fixer, right, for other people. And I just I see that so much. Plus, my grandmother, who I was so close to, my grandmother, Joy, died when Ellen was three days old. And I'm pretty sure that Grandmother Joy's spirit just hopped right into my little girl to be there with her. (laughs) Because just like my grandmother, she is bitingly funny. She is really attached to music. Like, she loves to listen to music. Her body can't be still when she listens to music. And I have these wonderful memories of my Grandmother Joy just practically floating around her kitchen listening to Frank Sinatra. And... She just makes facial expressions where I feel like she loves me in a way that she shouldn't be capable of yet. So there's there's a real gift in that for me. I I feel my grandmother with her, which is awesome, too. That's lovely. I don't know what to say after your beautiful (laughs) reflection. We can just wrap up. (laughs) It's It's probably enough. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics with our new intro. And thanks to Mark Charles for joining us. And we hope that you guys learned a lot and were pushed in new directions by that conversation. We will be back in your ears tomorrow over at The Nuanced Life, commemorating life's moments, big, small, popular, unpopular. (laughs) And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Cherry Haas, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. <laughs> 